I feel like already today, glory has been a theme. Um, when we sing God's praises in the morning, we sing of his glory, his greatness, how worthy he is to receive all praise. That's uh, pretty typical on a Sunday, but me personally, I was feeling that more and more today. And from what Ant shared and from what Mark shared, God's glory has been a focus. And it's an interesting thing because the text today is Jesus at seemingly his least glorious, Jesus at his absolute lowest point. Um, but one third of my sermon that I have prepared is about the glory of Jesus. We are at the crux of the gospel, the climax of everything that Luke has been trying to convince Theophilus and anyone else who will read it about. This is the big deal, the whole point of it all, Jesus' death and resurrection. And in order to understand the magnitude, the significance of Jesus' death, we need to understand his glory. I do have some notes. Because at the beginning of this passage here, where we left off last time, where is actually where we see Jesus at his lowest point. We see in verse uh, 24 and 25, which is where Mark ended his last sermon. Uh, Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. People were demanding that a murderer be released rather than Jesus. And so Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. We're reading from the Gospel of Luke, but the Gospels of, uh, according to Matthew and Mark, add a small detail here, a terrible detail here. They say that Pilate released this murderer, and then, having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. <coughs> having scourged him. Do you know what that means? A scourge is an ancient tool of cruel punishment. A multi-lashed whip with pieces of bone and metal tied into it. It was common practice before a crucifixion, before a Roman crucifixion, to scourge someone's back. And even though Luke doesn't include this detail, we see evidence of it in that Jesus is too weak to carry his cross and a passerby has to do it instead. This terrible punishment is made all the more awful and absurd because of Jesus' innocence. And that innocence isn't really the right word there. Jesus was innocent, sure, but that might imply that he was benign, that he was an you know, innocent bystander doing nothing when wickedness suddenly pounced upon him. But he was much better than innocent, wasn't he? He was healing the sick. He was teaching the love and mercy of God. He showed that even the right religious elite are not good enough to approach God, but that anyone can submit themselves to his mercy and grace. The lowest of the low, the most wicked, the most unloved can all enter the kingdom of heaven if they see their need for God's mercy and ask for it. Jesus showed that this is true, and the religious authorities said, no, we can't have that. 
Let's have him killed. How absurd that someone so peerlessly good should be punished so cruelly. But it's not just the goodness of Jesus that makes this punishment absurd. Jesus is more than good. He is God. Jesus is God. So who are you, ancient teacher, to mock him? Who are you, Roman soldier, to scourge him? Who do you think you are? Do you have any idea who this is? Psalm 97 says of God, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Picture it. Mountains melting like wax. Such is the might of God. Exodus 19 describes God as descending on Mount Sinai in fire, wrapping the mountain in smoke. The ground itself trembled. And when Moses spoke to God, God answered him in thunder. The people of Israel, in preparation for witnessing this, were to wash and consecrate themselves. And even having done that, made themselves as pure as possible. They weren't to approach the mountain. They weren't to touch even the edge of it on pain of death. They are not worthy of God's presence. Such is the holiness of God. And the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of God. He described him as having a human appearance, but of impossibly glorious substance, gleaming metal from the waist up, fire from the waist down, and brightness all around him. The prophet wrote, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. Such is the glory of God. And Jesus is God. This was his claim that made him most dangerous to the religious authorities of his day. He healed with the authority of God. He drove out demons with the power of God. He forgave sins with a word. He could take people's sins away. No more guilt. Who can do that but God? So why must he suffer like this? This awful thing that happened to Jesus seemed like Satan was having a field day. Everything's going well for him, it seems. And yet, the only reason the dirt ever clung to the feet of Jesus is because he commanded it to. Did you know that? All of creation is obedient to him. The only reason the sun beats down heavily on his skin is because he said it should. And the only reason the whips and pieces of bone and metal dare to tear flesh from the back of Jesus is because he said they must. The same is true of the crown of thorns they put on his head and the nails they drove into his hands and feet. All of creation submits to a higher authority than the hands that carry the hammer. But such was the will of God.
It's remarkable, isn't it, that the king of kings would submit himself to this, this cruel treatment, the long walk up the road to the place called the skull, to be nailed to a cross and suspended there until his human body could no longer sustain his life. To die in agony before the eyes of wicked people, of loved ones, his mother, according to John's account. What was all of this for? This is the cost of forgiveness. If you've heard anything about Christianity at all, and I know a lot of people in this room have, but I hope we do have some visitors today, some non-Christians today even, you're in the right place. You've probably heard the phrase, Jesus died for our sins. If I had to sum up the gospel in under two seconds, that's the phrase I'd use, word for word. But I have more than two seconds here. Try not to take too much longer, though. We are saved somehow through Jesus' suffering death on the cross. Now seems like the time to talk about how. So recall in Exodus, the Israelites standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they could not make themselves good enough, pure enough, holy enough to enter the presence of God. And we can't either. We cannot justify ourselves. Jesus, in his ministry, talked about how we all, every one of us, rebel against God. We fail to love each other as he commanded. We consider each other with unjust anger or with misplaced desire or with envy. In our hearts, we set ourselves against each other, make enemies of each other, dishonor each other, and from what bruise in our hearts, we even hurt each other. And we forget our creator, God, who loves us and made us purposefully. We reject his involvement in our lives. We want to be our own gods or to choose other gods for ourselves. And so from the most pious monk to the most wicked rebel, none of us can safely enter the presence of God on our own merit. The prophet Isaiah had a vision of God in all his glory, a robe that filled the temple, smoke all around him. And Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, the great prophet, knows that he is utterly unfit to stand before God. And he fears for his life because of it. It's game over, man. I'm unclean and God is here. We see this elsewhere as well, actually. Even in Luke... About a year ago, we looked at Luke chapter 5, where the Apostle Peter was called for the first time to follow Jesus. He'd been fishing all night and caught nothing. Jesus said, try again. And he filled his boat with fish to the point that it was sinking. When Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Even without the glorious flames, or the pillars of smoke, or a sapphire throne, or the voice of thunder, Peter realises he is unworthy of Jesus' presence. Such is the glory of God. So what is a sinful man or woman to do? And when I say sinful, I mean all of us, throughout all of history. 
what are we ever to do? Just live our lives, hope to never encounter God during them, hope that God's not waiting for us at the end of it. How do we make ourselves clean, pure, righteous enough that we can enter the presence of God? The penalty for sin, sin being our rebellion against God, our failure to love as we should, the penalty for these things is death. And here, Jesus pays that penalty himself. And so it's important we understand the greatness of God when we understand the penalty Jesus paid. Jesus took on the punishment for all of our sins because he is innocent. And not just innocent, but good. And not just good, but God. His death alone was enough for all who believe in him and all who ever will. So let's think about this cost to Jesus in his ministry. In Luke 5, a paralytic man was brought before Jesus. Before he healed the man of his paralysis, itself a miraculous thing, a sign of his power in God, a sign of him being God, Jesus looked at this man with compassion and gave him an even greater miracle. Man, your sins are forgiven you. You see what Jesus did there? I know you have a debt. I'll take care of it. These aren't empty words. This isn't done on a whim. There's a plan that Jesus is going to carry out himself. In Luke 7, a woman with a terrible reputation fell to Jesus' feet anointed them with ointment, washed them with her tears and her hair. She recognised the greatness of God right there and worshipped. And he, said to, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Do you see that? I know your reputation. I know how much of it is true, how much of it isn't, how much people don't even know about. I know you have a great debt. I'll take care of it. Because Jesus. And in so in today's passage, Jesus is being crucified next to two robbers. One of them railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. That is, we deserve to be here. We knew the crime, we knew the punishment, we took that risk. And here's where we are. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus sees his debt. And he says, I've got this. Right here, right now I'm paying for it. Do you not fear God? The criminal asks. Who is it, do you think, that will hold you to account at the end of your life? Who is it, do you think, that will make sure justice is done in the end? Regardless of what you do think, he's right here. I mean, he probably didn't gesture, he was hanging from a cross. He's about to come into his kingdom. What are you going to do with that? 
And Jesus responded, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Have sweeter, sweeter words ever been said? Can you imagine? At the end of your life, nothing left, and Jesus himself, God, says to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Isn't that wonderful? And we actually all have that same hope, don't we? That no matter what happens today or tomorrow or the next day, whether on Ant's anniversary, he's just given one, just one year to the day, whether we don't make it out today or we have another century ahead of us, on the last day, we will then go to be with Jesus in paradise if we just believe in him. That is our hope. And what an awesome hope it is. And so as Jesus is dying on the cross, creation is permitted to mourn. Darkness covers the land from noon until 3 p.m., the temple in the curtain, the temple in the curtain, the curtain in the temple, separating the most holy place from the rest of the temple, tears in two, inexplicably. Matthew records that as Jesus died, the earth shook. And Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. All those who know Jesus are watching. Hearts breaking. It sure looks like Satan has had his way. How could Jesus, their teacher, their mentor, their Messiah, be killed like that? Even though Jesus did say this would happen. But it seemed outrageous at the time. And now, what are they to do? Where is their hope? One of the religious leaders, a man named Joseph, one of the ones who had not condemned Jesus, who had not accused him, had not wanted him killed. He was permitted to take down the body of Jesus and bury him in a new tomb. <clears throat> the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed and they see where he's buried in this tomb. Luke is making a big deal here out of the fact that the people he knew saw where Jesus was buried and can confirm where it was. They leave to prepare spices and ointments for the body, perhaps thinking Joseph didn't have time to adequately prepare Jesus' body. But it's the end of the day on Friday. The Sabbath is about to begin, and so they must rest. And so they do. They won't be able to return until Sunday morning. And at this point, Jesus is dead. And the disciples are wrecked. They don't know what to do with it, even though Jesus prepared them for it. 
The thief is in paradise with Jesus. There is no better place to be. But it's a tough point to end on. There seems to be no hope in the living world. How do we know that Jesus is who he says he is? Okay, sure. He healed the sick. He performed miracle after miracle. And then people doubt. Okay, sure, he fulfilled prophecy. The prophet Isaiah wrote about a suffering servant who'd be pierced for our transgressions, who'd be numbered among the transgressors. Mark says this is fulfilled in Jesus being put on the cross between two criminals. He would pay the price for our iniquities. And yet, there seems to be no hope. And so originally this was going to be where the text ended this week. We were just going to wait, I guess, for next week when we do see hope again. I talked to Mark about it. We were struggling to figure out how to end this well. And he said, why not just do both? Death and the resurrection. Because when we talk about the gospel, the crux of the gospel, when we give a two-second version of it, Jesus died for our sins, we're actually only giving half the story. And it's the most costly half. It's the hardest half, for sure. It's the most agonizing half. But we also forget often about the most glorious half, that Jesus rose again. That our hope is more than just paradise with Jesus in a spiritual existence, but actually a resurrection of our own that Jesus proved for us. So if it's not for the resurrection, I don't know where the gospel is. I don't know where the disciples are. Even though Jesus followed through on his promise, and a thief joined him in heaven. I don't know if without the resurrection we see the church blossom and flourish like we did in history in the first century after Jesus' death. Jesus is a historical figure. Um, A lot of people don't know that. I hope most of us know that in this church. But um, Australian historian John Dixon was lamenting that about half of Australians don't believe that Jesus ever existed. And for him as a historian, this was a matter of historical literacy. What do you mean you don't think Jesus ever existed? We've been reading from Luke, a historical document, a collection of accounts from eyewitness testimony, this is who Jesus was, written only a couple of decades after Jesus life and ministry. And the Gospel of Luke is one of several. We refer to the Gospels in the New Testament. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. These are independent uh, compilations of eyewitness testimonies. These are distinct historical documents. When we read the other books in the New Testament, letters to different churches, 
These themselves are also historical documents. They don't tell the story of Jesus from birth to death to resurrection again, but they do affirm it. They say Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again. And so we have all this evidence corroborating each other. And then a few hundred years later, people have said, oh, we should collect all this evidence in one place. We'll call it the Bible. And so these days, sometimes people look at all this evidence and go, that's just in one book. That's what one group of authors, I guess, with one agenda has decided to say. That's not historical. But it is. And there are non-biblical accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And so, where do I put this? John Dixon writes, there we go, that historical experts largely accept Jesus was a real person, a teacher famous for healing, known for openness to sinners with 12 main followers. He clashed with the local elites, was killed by crucifixion, and even that many of his followers claimed to have seen him in person after his death. And the wording here, I think, is really interesting. Because I think it's only because it is so supernatural that someone will be seen after their own death by so many people that it's worded this way. Because we say from the historical evidence that Jesus lived because people claim to see him before he died. That he taught because people claim to have heard him teach. That he healed because people claim to have seen him heal. That he clashed with the local religious elites because people claimed to have seen him clash with the local religious elites. And we know he was raised to life because people claimed to have seen him when he was raised to life. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Great chapter. Check it out later. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures that he appeared to Kephas, that's Peter, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Check, ask them, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so this is how we account for the faith, for the church that blew up out of Jerusalem. That even though Jerusalem was besieged by Rome in 70 AD, just as Jesus on his way to the cross prophesied it would, even though the temple was destroyed, this weird sect of Judaism that people were calling the way was built on the power of God, the power of witness of a resurrected king, our living Jesus. And so there is our hope. We don't just serve in memory of someone who died for our sins, paid our price, got us our ticket, but that we serve a living king who has all the glory we talked about before and then some because of what he has done. 
and we look forward to seeing him again in person ourselves. That ultimately, all of creation, even those in paradise, are waiting for a resurrection. Jesus' final return, that all be raised and those who love Jesus, those who say, yes, Jesus, you're my king, and believe it, will have eternity with him. In Revelation, the last book in the Bible, probably the last written book in the Bible, the resurrected Jesus appeared to an elderly John, and he writes, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What an amazing picture of Jesus in his glory. Can you imagine it? What does John do when he sees him? Only what any of us should do. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Such is the glory of Jesus. But Jesus laid a gentle hand on him and said, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Behold Jesus, restored to his glory, the living one, a bodily resurrection. And we have the same to look forward to, that we will be able to be in God's presence, in person, without need of further purification. That we can stand on the same mountain as him as it trembles. That we can stand in the smoke with him, the smoke of his glory, and that we can sing his praises. Later on in Revelation, towards the end, <clears throat> Revelation 21, read actually, I'm going to turn to it in my Bible so I can actually read it. My handwriting is just really bad. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is a picture of the future after Christ's return. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. When we were singing God's praises this morning, when we were considering his glory, when we were talking about the mountains bowing down and the seas roaring, this is what I was thinking about. This is what we all have to look forward to. 
stand before God himself and worship. I was um, about a decade ago, I visited Zambia with some friends. We worked alongside some local volunteers, the scripture, scripture Union. And one of the things we would do together is read the Bible together, we'd pray together, and we'd sing together. And the thing about Zambians is they can sing. It's in their culture, it's in their blood, it's in both, I guess. So we're with a group of people. One of them, he was, he was their kind of star singer, and he'd sing a verse. There's no one, there's no one like Jesus. I'm not even going to try with the melody. There's no one, there's no one like Jesus. There's no one, there's no one like Jesus. There's no one, there's no one like Jesus. There's no one, there's no one like him. He sings a verse, and then everyone else joins in. And with the second verse, and he already sounded great, by the way. With the second verse, I was actually startled. Six or seven other Zambians in the room join in, and oh my goodness, that perfect harmony. Everyone knows their own range and how to kind of move within that range to complement it. It was quite ridiculous. It was, up until that moment, the most glorious experience of singing the praises of Jesus I've ever had with just a few other people. I couldn't believe it. And then a couple of weeks later, um, we were visiting schools. Zambia is a, officially a Christian country and you'll find that Bible literacy there is quite phenomenal. So visiting schools, talking to people, getting to know people. And we went to this one school. We were a little bit late to join in. And we came in the main entrance, and there was probably about 120 school kids all singing Jesus' praises. And it was something else. I have never experienced anything like this since. 120 incredible voices singing God's glory. And... Me and my friends had to walk down the centre aisle. Our seat, they'd been saving a seat for us near the front. And as I walked through and heard all these voices around me to this volume that I almost couldn't comprehend, this beauty that I'd never heard before, just feeling like the sound was moving through me and washing over me, and I just I, I could not handle it. Um, thankfully, that was so loud I couldn't hear my own voice when I joined in. But it was... An absolutely awesome experience. And even that is the tiniest foretaste of this future glory with Jesus, of what it will be like to stand together with resurrected bodies, with resurrected voices, hands raised and risen, and seeing to the glory of God with every Christian ever What a thing to look forward to. And as we sang this morning, I had another foretaste of that. And actually, every time we sing God's praises, we can think about the glory of God. We can think about the hope that we have in Him. We can delight in His majesty and look forward to joining Him in it. We're in closing prayer.